It's certainly good to see everyone this morning. I would encourage you to turn in your New Testaments to Luke, I mean, it's not Luke, John, John the 13th chapter. I don't know why I would say Luke when we're discussing the book of John, and have been now for weeks. (laughs) Okay, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, is where we'll be in just a few moments. And uh, basically to introduce our lesson this morning, I would like to remind you of what we covered in our last lesson. I would like to remind you of the fact that on that occasion we discussed Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and Peter's conflict with him in that and Jesus' statement in response when when Peter said, no, Lord, not not me, you're not going to wash my feet. We're told that uh, that Jesus told him, "If, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. And that's when, of course, Peter responded and said, not only my feet, but my head. And just, just talking about this continual bathing or cleansing, or not continual, this full con, uh, cleaning or, or bathing in order to, to, I guess, just kind of go to the extreme since he did want to be a part of, of Jesus. And in chapter 13 and verse 10, Jesus' response was, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not all of you. You are clean, but not all of you. That would be a, a rather cryptic remark that, that Jesus would make, and something perhaps that would be troublesome to his disciples if he were to say that. And he had a reason for saying it. Notice in the very next verse, in verse 11, we are told that he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, you are not all clean. Now, anyone who has even a passing passing. Um, knowledge of the of the Word of God recognizes the New Testament recognizes that the one to whom uh, the Apostle John here refers is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. And in verses eighteen through thirty, with regard to the uh, supper, and there is not a, a restatement in the Book of John. We talked about this last week of the of the Lord's Supper itself being implemented, but at that occasion on that night. Um, we read about uh, the betrayal of Jesus or the decision made by Judas. Um, now, it wouldn't be correct either because he had already made the decision, but this uh, final determination to do the deed, if you will, and it was done that evening, uh, was settled by Judas, and in part as a result of, of our, our Lord telling him to go ahead and do it if you're going to do it. We'll get into that in just a few moments. That's found in verses 13. Uh, verses 13 through, or excuse me, 18 through 30, 18 through 30 of the text. <clears throat> so, uh, in John chapter 13, and uh, we're going to begin with verse 80, uh, where he's, or 18, I'm having problems this morning for some reason, I didn't sleep long enough last night, I guess. But let's uh, look at verse 18, go ahead and read the text from 18 to uh, verse 30. He said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And the disciples looked at one another perplexed by what Jesus, or about whom he spoke. And there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore nodded to him that he should ask who it was of whom he spoke. So leaning back on Jesus' chest, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some of them thought, well, because Judas had the money box that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or maybe that he should give something to the poor. But having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And of course he went uh, to summon those who would who would arrest Jesus in the garden, as we know in, in our understanding or knowledge of that particular uh, event. I want to spend just a moment by looking at the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We won't spend a great deal of time in any of them, but there, there is some material and information that is supplied about Judas Iscariot in those three books as well. And I wanted to kind of flesh out who Judas Iscariot is. In fact, uh, there is not a great deal that is known about most of the apostles of our Lord. The Apostle Paul, one born out of due time, we know a lot about him. We know quite a bit about Peter as well, and, and certainly some about the Apostle John as well. But a lot of the, the disciples, I would say probably after John, just thinking off the top of my head, that Judas Iscariot would probably be the one we know most about, excepting uh, uh, Paul and, and Peter and John. And so we're told in the book of Matthew in chapter 26 that Jesus had alluded to his death just a couple of days before this supper. Um, this, um, this event took place here in, in John chapter 13. We're told in Matthew 26 that on that occasion he said the Son of Man will be delivered up and be crucified. And that 26th chapter in verses 3 through uh, basically, verse 16 reveals the Jews' plot that they desired to kill him and also Judas, his collusion with the leaders of the Jews to be the one who would, in effect, set Jesus up or, or betray him into their hands. And so we're told in chapter 26 and verse 25 that when Jesus told his disciples that one would betray him, on this occasion, or at least in Matthew's record, Judas actually directly asks Jesus, that question. Now he had he had covenanted with the Jews to do that, but he asked the Lord in Matthew twenty six twenty five, Rabbi, is it I? And you know the first thing that my mind comes to when he said that to see if if Jesus knew what was going on with him. Maybe he was talking about something different. Maybe he had not been exposed. But I don't know that that's the case necessarily. But Judas was told by the Lord, "You have said it." And so Judas knew that Jesus knew. Uh, and, of course, he knew that Jesus knew. And, and, of course, that is borne out in John as well. But it is interesting that he asked that question directly of Jesus. In the book of Mark, in chapter 14, there is an added statement that is made in verse 21 of Mark chapter 14 uh, concerning a woe that is stated by the Lord or declared by the Lord to the one who would betray him. 
He says there in verse 21, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And of course, if you look at the end, both physically and certainly spiritually of Judas Iscariot, you know that this woe indeed was rightfully stated by our Lord. The only thing I want to add with regard to this uh, picture of Judas that's found in the book of Luke is found in chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, and this decision that Judas made to collude with the chief priests and the captains to betray Jesus. We are told that Satan entered him. And I think that there is an interesting parallel between that statement and and what we find here uh, in, in John. He states the exact same thing. Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So what else do we know about Judas Iscariot? Well, we know that, of course, he was one of the apostles. Uh, the name Iscariot uh, probably indicates that Judas was a citizen of the city of Kerioth, and we don't know exactly where that is. It was probably south of Judea. But Judas Iscariot would be, rather than a, an official surname, an indication of he's the Judas from that place, from Kerioth. So he is Judas Iscariot. In all the list of the apostles, both in Matthew 10, uh, in verse 4, Mark 3:19, Luke 6, 16, all three writers refer to him in the list of the apostles as the betrayal of, or the betrayer of Jesus. But with regard to not knowing much about Judas, the only gospel that says much about or anything about Judas prior to this betrayal is John himself. So no, two events in the book of John, the first one in John 6, the next one in John 12, but in John 6 and verse 70, John 6 and verse 70, Jesus here is talking to his disciples who claim that they are loyal And this claim of loyalty, we won't leave you, was after many others walked with him no more. And Jesus' response to them was this. He said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, John says, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So early on, in John chapter 6, he related Uh, Judas as being a devil, uh, an indication of his betrayal. In John 12, in verse 4, when Mary broke a flask of oil to anoint the the feet of Jesus, that oil is spikenard, it was a very, very precious and and very um, expensive oil that she used to to wash his feet or anoint his feet. Uh, Some of the events indicate that not that many of the disciples, many of the apostles weren't happy with this, but there was a specific statement made by John about about Judas Iscariot. And he has motivation behind this in verse 4. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, again, uh, that's what he's known as, is the betrayer, and none of the the gospel um, uh, writers want you to forget that. It is a very significant thing. But one of the betrayers, or the the one who betrayed him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John writes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that Judas said this, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. A thief, a betrayer, a devil an individual that Satan entered into, the one who would betray our Lord. And from these texts, I think we get something 
of his nature and person. As our text reveals, um, this was a fulfillment of prophecy, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. So let's get back to our text in chapter 13 and verse 18. And he said, I, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. I do want you to note that these individuals were precious to, to our Lord. They were his closest companions and closest friends. He was confident and perceptive regarding the men he had chosen to be his disciples. He had personally hand-chosen all 12 of them. But he said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the spirit may, or scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that he who receives whomever, uh, that you may believe that I am he. So he says that, that there is one who would betray him or that um, uh, one would not or was not of him so that they would believe uh, at the first. He becomes more plain in his discussion of this as, as the text goes on, as you know. So we ask, why did Jesus uh, pick Judas? Was it, a, was it a bad choice? Was it a choice that, um, that indicated a lack of, of uh, prescience on the part of, of Jesus or a lack of, of good judgment on the part of Jesus? And there was a statement that I came across that I, I thought was very good in describing this. Judas wasn't chosen to be a traitor, but the choosing of Jesus fulfilled Scripture and that he became a traitor. In other words, anyone who would say that Judas was impelled to do this. Now, I'm not saying that it wasn't inevitable because we understand the foreknowledge of God, but the idea that it was impelled and that he did not have the free will, that he could not have chosen to do differently, they're mistaken in regard to that. Judas was not a tool that was used against his own will any more than Pharaoh was or, or many others who present themselves as enemies either of the cross of Christ or of of Jehovah God. But Jesus knew what was going to happen before it did. He knew the significance of the 41st Psalm in verse 9 when, when the psalmist said, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, which is the scripture to which Jesus referred. This prophecy, given again in antiquity by God himself, well, it, it indicates, number one, that Jesus knew it and his prescience, his understanding, his recognition of what was going to happen before it happened, that he was from God. The fact that it actually happened as he said it was, again, as we note, was evidence to the disciples that he was who he claimed to be. And so we recognize the uh, circumstances, what was going on. And we'll talk about the entering of Satan into Judas in just a few moments and what is meant by that as well. But before we do, I want to note again what is stated in verse 20 in the latter part. Or in, in that verse, he says, but I, Most surely I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And I think in this particular text, because we know that there is also a statement of the fact that Jesus would send a comforter who would come after him. But I think here in the context, the indication is that Jesus was referring to his disciples. He's talking about the preciousness of these men and the recognition that, um, that if uh, those who would, who would listen to their preaching would receive them, that is, receive their teaching, be uh, amenable to what they had to say, then in so doing, they would receive him, that is, the Christ. And, again, in that, he who receives me receives him who sent me. So I wanted just to make note, we don't necessarily need to discuss it, but the fact that, 
that what the idea of an apostle means is one who's an emissary, one who is an ambassador for the Lord. These individuals were sent out in the limited commission and after the death of our Lord in the great commission as well for the purpose of preaching the gospel to every creature. They were given that responsibility to go and share and spread the message of Christ, the good news of Christ, to the world. And this, of course, they did. And those who received them heeded, listened to their words, accepted what they had to say, um, uh, recognized the significance of the miracles that they performed, well, they received Jesus as well, and then as such, by extension, the Father. Now, what is an application we can make? And there's a reason why I bring this point up, and that is there are some individuals who will, for example, take issue with the teaching of Paul. And they will, they will make a distinction. They will say, uh, our Lord, for example, in, in Matthew through John, we'll, we'll take that as an example. You know that, that Jesus never directly dealt with homosexuality. This is a, a point that is made. There are many others that are made to make the same distinction. Many individuals who simply reject everything after the Gospel of John. But they say, you know, that, that Jesus, um, Jesus never uh, talked about homosexuality. And so uh, when you look later at Paul, for example, in his writings condemning sodomy, well, that's not Jesus. The Lord never said anything about it. And homosexuals take such, some comfort, those who claim to be believers in, in Christ, in the fact that Jesus never said sodomites are going to hell, uh, like Paul did. Now, it's, it's not true that Jesus didn't deal with the subject of homosexuality within the broader confines or the broader borders of, of uh, the, the concept of fornication, sexual immorality. Uh, when we are told, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, that, that God created man and woman, made them male and female, and said a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the establishment of that relationship and the fact that he made them male and female, what he did do was put a positive statement concerning what kind of sexual activity is accepted in the sight of God. Those who commit fornication or sexual immorality are condemned not only by the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers, but they're condemned by the Lord himself. But the point that we make here is that if you are to be received by Christ, then you must, or you're to receive Christ, you must receive those who were sent by Christ as well. To reject the apostles and reject their writings and reject their teachings, well, that's to reject the Lord. And that's where we could, of course, continue on with the discussion of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit led them or guided them into all truth, and then they revealed that truth to mankind. fact is, the words of our Lord, because the Holy Spirit did not bring something different, he simply brought the completion of Christ's covenant. So Matthew 2 Revelation consists of all that Jesus established in his covenant with man. Any individual who has the idea that all I have to look at and all I have to obey or follow are the red letters in the book, he's, he's mistaken. Because every word from Matthew to Revelation is something that we must heed and constitutes our, our new covenant, the, the constitution that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Then let us get down to, to verse 21. Because I want you to think for just a few moments. Try to put your, yourself in in Jesus' shoes in one sense, that, that one of the twelve, one of the ones that he had, had fed and, and ate with, one who was his closest companions, 
that it, that individual would betray him. And in verse 21, it says he was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. The antiquated language that we read sometimes or the, um, the fact that, that the people in the Bible don't always talk like you and I do. Um, maybe uh, we don't get the significance of that. It was not easy for Jesus when one of his friends betrayed him. It was a difficult thing. It was difficult right now. And I think to a certain extent that when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, that burden that was upon him, the fact that he prayed diligently to the Lord, if this uh, cup may pass, nevertheless not my my will but thine be done, that, that a part of that burden that he felt was the fact that one of his friends was going to very soon in the next few moments appear with a bunch of soldiers to take him away to be crucified. And so he was troubled in spirit. One of you will betray me. Now where we find what might be considered cryptic remarks, or if not uh, cryptic, at least um, not somewhat vague, so that at least the disciples at that time really didn't, didn't know exactly what he was talking about, here he comes out and says, one of you, there are 12 people sitting there with him, one of you is going to betray me. And when he said that, there were some interesting responses that came as a result of it. Verse 22 tells us that the disciples were confused. They were looking at each other. Simon Peter wanted to know who it was and, and motioned to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was a, a technique John used to identify himself in his own gospel. But Peter motioned to John because John was there uh, at the breast of Jesus. They all were reclining, and you'll think of John as slightly in front of and uh, maybe uh, to the chest, his head to the chest of Jesus. And so he, he, he asked the Lord because Peter wanted him to ask, who is it? And Jesus didn't directly answer and said, it's Judas Iscariot. He said that it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Now I want you to think here for a moment. What is indicated by this? After the piece of, uh, he, after he answered, is he whom I give a piece of bread? Okay, so here they are gathered around the table. And the question was asked, who is it? And he said, it is this one. Don't you think everybody would have been looking <laughs> to see if, if Jesus, it may be that he only said it loud enough for John to hear, but John doesn't seem to know initially uh, that Judas Iscariot is the one, even after he gave him the morsel of bread. So how could that be? Well, the only explanation that I can come to is because of how they were sitting, that no one actually saw that happen. In other words, the giving of the morsel, Judas knew what it meant because as we read in the other passage, uh, Judas asked, is it I? He asked him, yes, you said it. Now Jesus says, the one I give the morsel to, it's him. He gives the morsel to Judas. The disciples are still confused as we see a little bit later in the text, wondering why it was that Judas got up and left and why Jesus said, what did you do? Do quickly, because they didn't know. And so I don't know about the scenario is, but again, if you were to think about that, it's very possible that one thing could have been true. If if John was right in front of Jesus up to his uh, breast or chest, then possibly Judas was on the other side. And so this conversation, Lord, is it I? You said it. This giving of the morsel right to him would be something that would explain 
why the other disciples didn't know what was going on. But that's just a supposition on my part. Now, getting into verse 27 and also in verse 30, we're told after the piece of bread that Satan entered him. Satan entered him. And Jesus said, and what you do, do quickly. And having received the piece of bread in verse 30, we are told he went out immediately. So let's think about that for a few moments. What does it mean that Satan entered into him? One of the things that I want to, to understand, and it's, it's something that's found throughout Scripture, um, when we talk about the free will of men, that there has to be a... Um, there has to be a weakness on the part of an individual for Satan to influence him. Um, when, when you look at James chapter 1, for example, it talks about temptation. Man is, is tempted when he is uh, enticed. That's the devil's part. But when that desire becomes lust, he's, he's, uh, he's tempted because of his own lust and he is enticed by the devil. The lust there is present. We've already talked about how Judas was an individual who is, who is a thief, an individual who was a covetous man, an individual who wanted money. He had covenanted already prior to this particular occasion with the leaders of the Jews for 30 pieces of silver to portray Jesus into their hands. And now we're told that Satan entered, entered Judas on this occasion. So what does that mean? Well, again, James 1, I think, is a good explanation of that because um, an individual uh, lust, he is enticed. When that desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. That decision is made. Judas has settled on it. I'm going to do it. Here I go. And he said, whatever you do, do quickly. Judas could have refused. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you, we are promised. But he didn't. Instead, that enticement that the devil placed, that money there, that was more important to Judas. And so Satan came in. Judas could have repented on this occasion. The Lord knew his plans, had told him he knew, but, but the fact is that Judas wanted to betray the Lord. Money was more important to him than faithfulness to his master. And so Judas succumbed to the temptation which led to Jesus' betrayal and death. Now there's a final application I want to make, and the lesson will be yours. Uh, as we draw our lesson to a close, when that statement, Satan entered him, you understand that it applies to us as well? I'll read that text from James chapter 1 that I alluded to earlier. It's in verses 14 and 15 of the text where James says this. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. When the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That, that explains, number one, it explains what is meant by the phrase Satan entered him. But it also explains exactly what happened in the case of Judas. Judas wanted money. An opportunity arose for him to get money. That's the enticement that Satan put before him. That lust for that money was conceived, and it brought forth the actual sin. He got up, he departed, and he betrayed the Lord. And sin, when it's full grown, the consequence of sin is death. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. But the thing is, it's exactly the same thing that can happen to each and every one of us. You know, we, we talk about Judas all the time, about being the betrayer of Jesus. You can, you can tell by that description that was given by the New Testament writers 
that Judas was not a popular individual, and rightly so. I mean, their, their master, the one that they loved, the one they committed their lives to, was betrayed by this man, and they, they spoke harshly of him. We speak harshly of Judas as well. But what Judas did is something that we all have done. He lusted. The lust conceived in his heart brought forth his sin, and because of sin, he was separated from God. And that happens with every single one of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when the enticement to sin leads to a decision to sin, we too are letting Satan in. And that's all that means. That's all that text indicates. When we talk about our adversary, the devil walks about roaring, seeking whom he may devour. When we talk about the fact that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He's there. We either invite him in or we can tell him go away. And we all have to make that decision, and we make that decision every single day of our lives. So I would like to leave you with that admonition. Don't let Satan in. And I want to leave you with a passage of Scripture from James chapter 4 and verse 7. James 4 and verse 7, going through verse 10. Where the writer James tells us, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's a good lesson for us, something we can learn from this horrific example. We learn from positive examples, but we also learn from negative examples. And seeing what Judas did teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves and what we are to avoid. We offer an invitation at this time to anyone who's here. need to respond to that invitation call. We give you an opportunity if there's some sin in your life that you want to make right. We offer the availability to you for that as well. If there is that, we ask that you come now. All together we stand and while we sing.